Well, good morning. Um, thank you guys for uh, praying for me. It is really, really encouraging to know that I have a family here that's been my family for a long time now, and that uh, you guys are praying for my family over there and, um, and for our future. Um, we're always kind of in this perpetual state of trying to figure out where, where God has us and where he's leading us, and, and in a perpetual state of... Um, just learning how to rest in him where we are. So thank you for your prayers. Um, I was kind of trying to figure out what should be the first words out of my mouth when I got up here this morning and uh, thought, you know what, I'm just going to dive right in and and, uh, say, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12. And I thought about it for a second. I was like, well, you know, not everybody is turning in their Bibles. Some of them have electronic copies, digital copies. And so I need to find a different word to be like super inclusive to get you all, all of you guys involved. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. That was clever of me. Uh, you open an app and you open a paper Bible. But while you're going there, um, so in this letter... 1 Peter is writing to a very broad group of churches in Asia Minor. Um, And they're undergoing some sort of opposition and persecution. And it's not gotten to the point yet where um, the Christians are being thrown to the lions. They're They're not at this point in church history being executed, probably, um, What's happening, though, is, there, is they have this opposition. They're being shamed. Um, they're, they're enemies, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of the church, particularly in that region of the world, in Asia Minor, are, are just heaping shame on them. They're, ma- they're making fun of them. Um, and so Peter writes to them to encourage them in this situation. And he writes um, one of the main themes of the whole uh, book of First Peter is honor and shame. And one could, could draw certain parallels to our own situation in this country today. Um, most of the things we say about what the Bible says about what's right and wrong, much of what you would hear in the media, much of what you would hear from the world would shame that, you know. Um, Pastor Roundtree was uh, speaking recently about um, issues dealing with homosexuality and about um, what's right and wrong there. You people all know the social pundits who would just rip that up and try to shame it as much as possible. Well, that's been the way it's always been. People have always been shaming the church, and it was no different in Peter's day. And so what Peter does is he writes, um, he starts out the book with a series of metaphors and word pictures to try to help the people of God grasp who they are in Christ and to paint a true picture in the midst of this shame that's being heaped on them, a picture of honor. And then after he does that, he kind of moves through the rest of the book as to how they live out their identity, how they live out who they are in Christ. Um, and that's the way actually a lot of the books of the Bible are, are um, organized. It's who you are and then what you should do. Um, and so I'm going to be drawing primarily from the first half of the book, and I'm going to start reading actually in uh, chapter 2, Verses 1, we're going to re- go through some of those word pictures. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I said 4 through 12, but it's all so good. I want to just read the whole book. Anyway, so 
So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to here in this passage is, is that term or that phrase, whatever it is, group of words in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, sojourners and exiles. Now that's kind of on down towards the end. It's weird that I'm starting at the end and then working my way back a little bit. But Peter calls them sojourners and exiles. He actually starts out the entire book, the entire letter, um, addressing it. If you turn over to uh, chapter 1, verse 1, um, couple pages over there, or one page, depending on how big your Bible is, um, to those uh, who are elect exiles in the dispersion. And then, again, in, in chapter 1, verse 17, he urges his hearers to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. So why this word picture? Why does he start off the book with this word picture? Why does he want his readers to see themselves as those who do not belong, as those who are displaced? I mean, they know they're being dishonored by the people around them. Now, some have taken uh, that term sojourners and exiles kind of literally. To um, They understand it as these are, he's writing to ethnic Jews who are um, literally exiled from, from the nation of Israel, from the Holy Land, and they're far away from their home. But context, I think, really shows that he's writing to a mixed group, <clears throat> excuse me, a mixed group of believers, both Jews and Gentiles, who are actually exiled in the world. They're experiencing the life of someone who is rejected and displaced. And um, this idea, this idea of sojourners and exiles automatically brings up 
in the mind of people, you know, who have, who have been reading the Word, who have been reading the Old Testament at the time, the images of the people of Israel. The people of Israel were exiles a lot. You know, they were in the wilderness coming up out of Egypt, and they did not yet have their homeland. They were, in a sense, rejected. After that, there were, some of them were exiled in their own land as the, uh, as the, the nation turned away from God, and there were a few, there were a remnant who remained faithful. They experienced a life of exile in their own land. And then ultimately, the people of Israel had been kicked out of their homeland. They had been taken into literal captivity, literal exile into, uh, into Babylon, and later um, became Persia, um, before they were brought back. So what Peter is doing is he's placing these people, the recipients of his, of his book, within the story, within the written word of God, within the narrative. They are part of that tradition of exiles, and we're still part of it today. He wanted them to think of themselves as the same group of people that was at the foot of Mount Sinai 1,300 years before this was written. He wanted them to think of themselves as, as living within that same story um, that had been told there where God met with his people. Whether ethnic Jews or Gentiles, they were part of that same community that had received the commandments and had received the covenant. Their Lord Jesus Christ had been rejected, and so they were being rejected. They were living out the same story, and we're part of that story today. But then in chapter 2, verse 9, if we're working our way back here a little bit, chapter 2, verse 9 uses another metaphor to describe the church. And there Peter calls us, the church, a royal priesthood. Now, first of all, I have to admit that I've slipped up over um, that phrase a little bit before. I kind of used to think that it meant that we are a priesthood as the church that serves royalty, i.e. we serve the king, we serve God. And it does mean that, but it also means a good bit more than that. Um, what's in view here, as, as the term is used in Scripture, um, we, that priesthood, that those believers are included in the royal administration. So it's like you are a priesthood and you are royalty. You are a royal priesthood. Um, And the first time the term is used, it's in Exodus, again pointing back to Mount Sinai, the children of Israel in the wilderness. And there um, the children of Israel are described as as a royal priesthood. God promises that if the people of Israel will only obey him, they will be a kingdom of priests. They will be priests who rule. And throughout the Old Testament, God directs his prophets to instruct the people of Israel, to instruct his people that one day the nations will come to them and they will rule over them. It's this destiny of rule. The promise is echoed again in Revelation 1.6 where Christ is described as the one who made us a kingdom and priests to our God. So how can we see ourselves both as royal priests on the one hand and as sojourners and exiles on the other? the two metaphors just kind of, in your mind, that they don't mix well, and they're not really meant to, I don't think. Um, You know, kings live in palaces, and sojourners live in tents, or they live wherever they can. Priests, you know, they wear the ornate robes, and they're they're sacrificing in, in temples. 
They work in temples and sojourners, exiles, they work wherever they can. They're um, refugees, as it were. So how do these go together? And this tension, this tension between our identity as heirs of the world that God created and our identity as exiles within it, it runs all through the history of the church. Um, You know, in the medieval Catholic church, Roman Catholic church, there was this kind of tension between should we be more monkish? You know, more like the monks, we're separating ourselves from the world, we're putting ourselves in cloisters and engaging with the world, but maybe from a distance. Um, Some did this better than others. Or should we be more popish? You know, like the medieval Roman Catholic popes who kind of took over the, um, the institutions of the world and ruled uh, from Rome. And, you know, those examples are from the medieval church, but the same, the same tension is in our own church today, in the Reformed tradition and in broader evangelical Christianity. Should we withdraw from the world? Should we be, uh, express ourselves as exiles? Or should we um, strive to take charge of our government? and our entertainment industry, and our uh, educational system. And as with most of these perennial debates within the church, Scripture offers a very unique perspective, and it offers a very unique mandate, a command. So the first key to understanding how to think of the role of the church in the world is to hear what the Bible says about what time it is. What time is it? The Bible is always pointing us in three directions at the same time. Um, It's pointing us back to what Christ did when he reconciled us um, to God and his work on the cross, death, burial, resurrection, as as Jonathan was saying, listing them out, session, intercession. Um, And it's pointing us to what God is doing right now uh, in our lives. The Bible points us to that as he's sanctifying us. And the Bible is also always pointing us to the future, to what God will do at the end of the story when he returns again to set up his kingdom on this earth. And regardless of what you believe about the millennial reign of Christ or how to interpret biblical prophecy, we can all agree that Christ is coming to set up his reign on this earth. When he does return, we will be with him and like him, and we will reign with him. So the ultimate fulfillment of the church as royalty, as royal priests, comes yet in the future, after where we are right now. That is when we receive our sure inheritance. Um, That's described in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If you'll turn with me there, I'm going to go ahead and read that too. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that that's something really to look forward to. I think the application of of that future, the most immediate application anyway, is to simply look forward to it, to anticipate it, 
and to, to have joy in that. At that time, um, when all of the powerlessness that we feel as, as strangers and exiles on this earth, the powerlessness to keep evil people from doing evil things, our powerlessness to keep innocent people safe from evil people doing evil things, our powerlessness um, or our inability to, to keep ourselves from failure when we try to do good and fail, ultimately all of that goes away when Christ returns, when he wins, and we become fully a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. Or, yeah, goofed up the word order there. But um, we live into that identity fully uh, with Christ when he reigns upon the earth. So look forward to that. Look forward to that time. Anticipate that. Understand that our time as strangers and exiles, just as the children of Israel in the wilderness, that that is temporary. But what about now? So verse 9 says, uh, you are a chosen race. This is back in uh, chapter 2. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Is there a sense in which we already live into our identity as royal priests? In verse 5, I read earlier, um, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, there certainly is a sense in which, right now, at this time, um, where God has us in our lives, we are royal priests. We are royalty. And it reminds me kind of of the story of King David. Back in 1 Samuel, I think we did a series on that not too long ago. Um, When David, uh, he was anointed king in 1 Samuel when all that he had to reign over was just a flock of stupid sheep. You know, they were animals. They weren't even people. But he was king. He had been anointed king already um, before he ever went into Saul's service or before he ever fought Goliath or before um, he was ever exiled from his, from his kingdom and before he went to live in, uh, among the pagans and the Philistines, before all of that, he had been anointed king. And when he was, you know, in the wilderness over a band of ruffians, he was king long before his rule was fully realized. And we are royalty now, even though our rule is far from realized, while we are still exiles. So each and every one of us has something um, that God has placed under our authority, within our sphere. We have uh, a sphere in which we are royal priests. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews um, chapter 13. I'll read just real quick uh, verses 15 through 16. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 15. Through him... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We are already living in this identity of being royal priests, offering sacrifices through um, the things that we do. 
So if you're a student, um, still in high school or before that, you have under your sphere your studenthood. You have your schoolwork. You have the things that God has placed under you. Rule over those things and offer them as sacrifices to God. You may be a housewife or a stay-at-home dad. Um, You may have a a career or you may be retired, moving toward retirement. Wherever you are in life, you have things that are under your authority as as a royal priest. Do not let those things rule over you. Do not let leisure rule over you. Do not let it become an idol in your life. Leisure is good, and all the things that God has given us are good. But if they come to rule over us, if our work comes to rule over us and causes us not to submit to the Word of God, then it's become an idol, and we've lost our, and we start to lose our identity as, as royal priests. Um, and this is where we have to be creative. We have to see the things in our lives that we can offer as sacrifices to God, rule over those things, and offer them up to him. So rule and serve where God is placing you. Now the Old Testament priests, which this is pointing back to, um, Peter is always, and all of the New Testament authors are always kind of drenching themselves in the Old Testament and pointing back to it, and the Old Testament points forward to the New Testament. But the Old Testament priests had two primary functions, and we usually focus on the first function when we think about them. When you think about a priest, he's offering a sacrifice for the people. That's what um, I was just discussing a second ago. That's, that's, that's where your mind automatically goes. Um, but the priests also had a preaching role in the Old Testament. They were not only sacrifice offerers or temple workers, they also were preachers. In Deuteronomy 31, uh, 9 through 13, I'm not going to turn there, but the priests were entrusted with a copy of the law, and they were given the responsibility to read it and, uh, and to explain it regularly, um, time after time, to the people. It was part of their, their role as priests. And, uh, and then in Nehemiah 8, the priest Ezra, he does this. He obeys the command. He, he reads the law to the people, and then he explains it to them. Um, and there are other examples in Scripture of, of priests doing this, of them fulfilling their, law, their role as uh, guardians of the law, as having been entrusted with the law. And the reason I bring that up is because both of these roles, offering sacrifices like I've just described, and also um, administering the word, in some facet, are brought up here in this passage. So in verse 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We've discussed that. Then in verse 9, it says, But you yourselves are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the purpose that's given here for the salvation and the existence of the church as a royal priesthood is that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what priests do. Ultimately, 
The purpose here in verse 9 is to glorify God. And this is why the confession says that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him to get forever. We do that through proclamation. Now, a friend of mine, um, his name is Jonathan Williams. He's a pastor up in, uh, up in Fountain Inn, and he's also a uh, uh, um, chaplain in the Army Reserve. He tells a story about um, some of his fellow soldiers, and it's a, it's a story that, that has, is just incredibly dramatic. I don't think he's ever met any of these particular soldiers, but um, I love the story. It's, it's about, actually, a 32-year-old um, single American woman. Her name is Jessica Buchanan. You, she was on the news 2011, 2012 is when this happened. Um, and she was working as an aid worker. She wasn't herself a soldier. She was working as an aid worker in Somalia. And she was dedicating a, a period of her life to um, clearing out these unexploded landmines that were... Um, that were left over from the war. They're very dangerous. You may remember, like, Princess Diana was kind of doing part of that same movement a generation earlier. Um, but, so she was giving up a part of her life to do that. And as she was doing that, she was driving down, or her driver was driving her and other aid workers down a dusty road through the desert one day, and their vehicle was hijacked. It was these... Um, bandits swooped down on it and captured it and drove it off at extremely high speeds through these winding roads through the wilderness, captured her, her friend, and took them captive um, to a secret place. And she was obviously terrified throughout that entire experience. And it got worse because the weeks and the months passed and she was still there while kind of negotiations, hostage negotiations were taking place. And these were, these were bad guys. They were bandits on the one hand, but they were also connected to the Al-Shabaab terrorist uh, group there. Absolutely terrifying situation. As the months passed, her health deteriorated. She was living in really horrible conditions. And, um, you know, she was uh, dehydrated, living in the desert, and she was becoming more and more sick. And unbeknownst to her, the... Uh, the U.S. military was kind of monitoring the situation. They knew where she was. They knew kind of what was going on. And they came to a point where they realized that negotiations weren't going to work anymore and that if action wasn't taken, if risks weren't taken, um, she would probably die in the wilderness of her diseases there in Somalia. And so one night she was sitting around She was sitting beside a campfire with her captor there in the desert, and um, she heard a noise kind of behind her outside the range of the firelight. And she looked up at one of the people who, one of the men who had taken her captive, and she saw this look of horror just come over her face, uh, his face, rather. And then she ducked down. There was this just tremendous explosion of gunfire. And within a very short period of time, all of her captors within that particular camp were dead. They had been killed. And shortly thereafter, SEAL Team, SEAL team 6 kind of charged into the camp. They grabbed her and started hightailing it out of there toward a helicopter they had waiting some miles away. While they were, 
while they were taking her out, um, she was kind of in ongoing danger of ambush from other camps of bandits. And um, so they, the SEAL team was actually guarding her with their own bodies um, as, they, as they moved her toward the helicopter. They get to the helicopter, and everything works out. She, uh, she gets back to a Western hospital. She's slowly nursed back to health, and the story ends very well. And so, you know, when I hear that story, I love it, first of all, just because it's so incredibly dramatic, and you, you get caught up in this just admiration for the soldiers and this, uh, their skill and their courage, what they did for Jessica. Um, and so much so that I almost forget to hear or forget to listen to the end of the story. The end of the story, what happens after that, is that Jessica becomes an advocate for Special Forces soldiers and their families. So the result of her rescue, this tremendously dramatic rescue, is proclamation. She tours the country. Um, She released a book. I'm not sure if she authored it or was in collaboration with someone else. Um, But the result of rescue was proclamation. She was proclaiming the excellencies of those who came and took her out of that dark night. And the church, likewise, was not just saved for its own sake, although that is certainly the point, or although that is certainly important, rather. It was saved for the sake of the glory of God in the world. Our own tradition, the Reformed tradition, Presbyterian Church, we have a long and a glorious tradition, but the preservation of that tradition is not the function of the church. It's not the purpose of New Covenant Church. The purpose of the church and every church is to bring glory to God. And according to our text today, two of the primary ways we do that is by offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and by proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So you have a mission, Nukov, just like Jessica Buchanan had a mission. Find ways to tell your friends and your neighbors about Jesus Christ to proclaim his excellencies. Bring them here where they can hear um, people on this stage proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and their lives can be transformed. And this is also one of the reasons uh, why we keep ourselves from sin, from idolatry, from murder, from theft, from sexual sin, all of the things we read about in the Ten Commandments and elsewhere. So look again at... uh, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we preach the glory of God through our good deeds. When we give to the poor, when we feed the hungry, as it talked about sharing in, um, back when I was reading in Hebrews chapter 13, when we put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, when we abstain from the passions of the flesh, we do so for the sake of the glory of God and the world. That's how chapter 2 starts out. 
And then it moves, the, the argument that Peter gives moves on in chapter 3, um, where it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. They do this so that people can be one without a word into obedience to the word. It uses that term, obedience to the word. People can be one without a word to Christ um, through seeing Christ manifest in his church, through seeing Christ in us. So when we, when we do these things in front of the unbelieving world, the Gentiles here, um, we force a response. The unbelieving world, the world around us, can either reject us, rejecting Christ in us, and if they do, we experience our identity as exiles and sojourners, or they can glorify God because of what God is doing in us, and then we will experience our identity as royalty, as priests to them, and the world will be increasingly ruled by the gospel That is how we express our royalty. We have been entrusted with the inspired word of God. And through the growth of the kingdom, the word of God is becoming the constitution of the world around us. Now, some Christians have been placed by God in positions of authority in the world. But that's not primarily how the rule of Christ is established through taking over institutions of the world. Peter anticipates that this would be the natural response of the people who are receiving this letter. Um... You know, if, if you find out that you are actually royalty, your natural response is, well, I don't have to listen to anybody, and I should be telling you what to do. Which is why he goes on in uh, chapter 2, verses 13, really through the end of the chapter there, um, to talk about submission to our worldly authorities. It's not by taking over um, that we that we express our identity as, as a kingdom of priests, as royal priests, it's by living in submission. It's by honoring um, those around us, living in submission ultimately to God, but also to the, the, the human institutions, it says in verse 13, our rulers and the authorities that God has placed over us. So even when we are not honored, we honor everyone. And the rule of Christ is established through the spread of the gospel and through obedience. Now, one of the most important things to remember in all of this is that just because you um, tell people the word and just because you offer sacrifices, that doesn't make you a priest. It says in Hebrews that um, men do not make themselves priests. God creates priests. And that is why it reminds us in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are being built up by God. It's by God's mercy that people are given the honor of being incorporated into the household of God, built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So those who have not received this mercy experience Christ as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, as it says, They will trip up over Christ, and they will experience the wrath of God. But it says in chapter 1 that those who have been born again to a living hope are being guarded by God's power through faith. And so, if you've not received God's mercy, 
the way to do that, the way to receive God's mercy is not by offering sacrifices. It's not by um, proclaiming. The way to receive mercy is by going to Christ and trusting in him for his mercy. Go to him, pray to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he is excellent. He will hear you. If you have received mercy, rest and trust in that mercy. You are now God's people. So rest in his excellencies, even as you go out proclaiming the word, proclaiming Christ, and offering good sacrifices. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you um, that, that you have given us this identity as a people who have been transformed. I do thank you, Lord, that you have placed us here in Anderson um, and here in, in this, this part of Anderson and in these spheres of our life uh, where we can honor you and offer up sacrifices. I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that you would grow us to be more conformed to your Son, to be more built up upon him as our chief cornerstone. pray that you would give us rest. Allow us to trust in Christ even as we go out and work for you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Ralph.